Hi, and welcome back to the Multifaceted Athlete with Coaching Lutz. I'm your host, Kelly Lutz. I am a USGA certified running and ultra running coach and certified strength and conditioning specialist. I am so excited to have you here today. We'll be talking all about running, aspects of running, strength training, and anything else that makes us humans who do sports. So let's dive right into this episode. I hope you love it. Hello, welcome back to another week of the Multifaceted Athlete. This week, I have another guest episode for you. But before we dive into that, two updates from me. First, it, it this will be March when this comes out. March 1st, and our group run for those of you in the Denver Boulder area will be on Saturday, March 18th at 9 a.m. If you have wanted to come, please come. We'd love to have you. We'll be meeting in Louisville. All of that is linked in the show notes. And if you go to the training block website, you can also search for the April group run, which will be on Sunday, April 16th. We will be going to a different location in April. So that's really exciting, a different trail that I love. And after both of these, we'll be heading to a local coffee shop just to hang out some more so we get some more social time together. So if you've been interested, follow the links in the show notes, and I hope to see you this March. Second update, I am at capacity with my one-on-one athletes, but in the second half of this month, March, I will be opening, opening up four more spots. And those spots will be going to those on my wait list first. So if you've been interested in working with me as your coach or think you might be interested, sign up for the wait list in the show notes as well. And you'll be the first ones to know when those spots are open and you'll get first dibs. So now let's get into this guest episode. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking to a registered dietitian, Elisa Lieb. She is also a climber and a runner in the... Denver Boulder Golden area. She comes to the group runs sometimes. So I've hung out with her quite a bit since last August when we started the group runs. And this episode is really perfectly timed. We recorded this last week um, on the 24th of February and it's coming out March 1st. And if you're listening to this the week it comes out, this is also Eating Disorders Awareness Week. So In this episode, we talk mostly about intuitive eating, what it is, the 10 principles that guide it, what it isn't, why Elisa recommends it for everyone, and how athletes can utilize it. And within this, we also do mention eating disorders and share parts of our own experiences in that area. So if that is hard for you to listen to, take care. You can skip this episode. I will not be offended but did want to note that up front. We also spend some time at the end of the episode just musing about what we've seen in the climbing and running spaces related to diet cultures and disordered eating and how these issues aren't just something that the pros deal with. That All of us are, well, not all of us are dealing with it, but all of us could potentially deal with it. And we just want to encourage others to share their stories. And along with that, I do have a call to action at the end of this episode if you make it that far. If you have a story that you want to share but you don't want to share it personally on, you know, your social media or whatever platform you have, if you want to send it to me and feel comfortable, I can read it anonymously on a future podcast episode. So I'm going to collect anyone's stories who they want to share but don't want to share personally and I'll read them anonymously. I will also 
be recording my own story and journey. Um, I've kind of been putting this off. I've wanted to record it for quite a bit, but there's a lot that goes into it. What do I share? What don't I share? You know, but I will be doing an episode all about stories of people who have struggled with eating disorders or disordered eating, anything around eating and sports. So I think you're really going to like this conversation with Elisa. It is such a good one and an important one. But like I said, if any of these topics are hard for you to listen to or you don't feel like you're in the right space to listen to them, please skip this episode. Take care. Come back later if you feel comfortable. But without further ado, let's dive in. Here is my conversation with Elisa. I hope you love it. Welcome back to another week of the Multifaceted Athlete. I am joined with another guest today, and we're going to talk about a lot of nutrition topics, which is very exciting. So I'm here today with Elisa Lieb. She's a registered dietitian, and if you're in the Denver Boulder area and you ever want to hang out with her, she comes to the group runs, just saying. So Elisa, welcome (laughs) to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kelly. I'm so excited to talk today because you were posting some stuff recently on your Instagram about intuitive eating, and that's what kind of sparked our conversation about talking on here. But before we dive into that, can you tell the listeners, for those who don't know you, how? well, actually me too, because I don't know this story. How did you <laughs> get into nutrition and running? Okay, nutrition and running. Um, okay, I'll start. I'll go kind of chronologically because there's a lot of overlap between both. Um So I grew up as a soccer player, but I joined my middle school track team because the wind jacket that everybody on the team got was cool and I wanted one. (laughs) Um, No shame. And I was very open about that at the time. Um, So I ran middle school track and I was like kind of fast for a 12 year old, which was kind of cool. Um, That was kind of my start to running. And then in high school, I focused on soccer more. So I didn't really run that much outside of soccer until college um when I started running to try to lose weight after gaining the freshman 15 which I know is a pretty common story for a lot of runners Mm -hmm. um okay so we're gonna rewind just a little bit um to pull in that nutrition piece um I first started getting interested in nutrition in high school when I was thinking about soccer um and nutrition for soccer Uh, And I remember mentioning to a friend like, oh, you know, I think I'll study nutrition in college. That would be really interesting. And my friend told me about how his mom had been a clinical dietitian and had hated it. And I was an impressionable 17, 18 year old. So I was like, oh, okay, I guess I just won't do that. (laughs) Um, So I did not study nutrition in undergrad. I have an economics degree. Um, And yeah, Kelly's learning stuff. Um, (laughs) So I, yeah, so I got my economics degree um, in college when I got back into running. Um, And at some point, my running and kind of weight loss journey uh, turned into an eating disorder. Um, And this, I, I mentioned this because I think it's unfortunately very true for a lot of people who become dietitians um, as they end up in the field because they're looking for a better way to control their bodies. Um, 
and and that ended up being the case for me. So I I was working in research. It was just, you know, your standard office job where you walk in at 9 a.m., you sit down and eight hours later you get up and you leave. Um, and my eating disorder brain just couldn't handle how sedentary I was. And so I literally sat down and I was like, okay, what jobs could I do that don't involve sitting all day? Um, and I was like, I'm not going to be a teacher. Like, I don't want to be a doctor. Blood is gross. Um I thought about physical therapy for a while. Um, I went down that path for a little ways. And then I showed up for my first day of shadowing. And the PT was like, well, you're going to do laundry. And if you're lucky, you'll get to shadow. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> um, so then I was like, well, like I was interested in nutrition that one time. And, you know, my friend's mom had had a bad experience with it. But, you know, maybe that was just her experience. I'm going to do that. Um so that that was kind of what led me to nutrition was this this eating disorder and this desire to find the best I'm making air quotes um way to eat which for me at the time was the way to eat that would make me the smallest um and I am so fortunate that I had not taken a science class since 11th grade um, because I had to take three years of science prereqs. And in those three years, I was able to recover from my eating disorder. And so by the time I started my actual coursework in nutrition, I was able to approach it from a much healthier mindset um, and was able to have an open mind towards things like intuitive eating um, and just wasn't spending the entire time I was in my grad program just focused on, okay, what was the thing that that professor said that could help me to lose weight and control my body? Um, yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's not easy to talk about. I know. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, I think obviously not everyone has the same story as you, but like I have a similar story. I am not a nutritionist as everyone knows, but I feel like I could have easily gone down that path and it's kind of surprising that I didn't when I think back on it, because like very similar to you, like developed an eating disorder, just wanted to be my smallest and like tried so many nutritional diets, quote unquote, out there, like everything. Um, anyway, that's a tangent. But I'm curious, when you were first learning about nutrition in high school, were you learning that like through school in a class or was it like you know, how a lot of us learned in the magazines and what have you, the media at the time, we didn't have social media quite then, did we? It was, I had Facebook at that point, okay, um, yeah. but it, it was, it was very different then. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite Instagram level yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it was magazines and it, when I say I was learning about nutrition, it was like, I sort of acknowledged that it existed. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I knew you know, from, from years of playing soccer and just sort of experimenting, like I knew there's a reason that soccer moms bring oranges at halftime. Um, you know, there's a reason why we're drinking Capri Suns. Um, so I didn't know that much about nutrition, but I definitely noticed just from my own experience and, uh, yeah, just like what, what felt good in my body. Um, but I will say every time I had to fly anywhere when I was in high school, I would always go to the like magazine shop in the airport and get like a Cosmo. And yeah, and those were all, you know, flooded with foods you should eat to have, you know, a, a good figure and foods you should never eat ever. And, you know, that kind of thing that definitely takes a toll. Yeah, I feel like back then, I'm assuming we're the same age. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> I, think, I think within a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of what I remember, I used to get like women's health 
a lot. That was like my magazine at the airport. Uh, it was all about the six packs and the obsession with the six packs. And it's just knowing what I know now, I'm just like, oh, little Kelly, why did you focus on that so much? <laughs> you know, it's really hard to look back because I, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, oh my God, like, why did I believe that stuff? Like, why did I buy into that? But then, yeah, I don't know. I try to try to look back on little Elisa with some compassion because she didn't know any better. No. And I feel like the girls growing up now, I feel like they have it a lot worse just with like social media and like I feel like there's been – this is totally not what we plan to talk about. I feel like there's been a lot of <laughs> – progress I don't know if progress is the right word but in terms of like the mass media feels like it's turned a little bit from when we were growing up but then you also have access to like the filters on social media that are not real at all and then you're comparing yourself to someone who is you know more quote-unquote relatable to you because they look like you know they're your age they're not famous whereas we were like looking at models and famous people um, I don't know where I was going with that. Have you yeah, that? I mean, I think, <laughs> I think, have things gotten better? Have they gotten worse? Like, I think it's a mixture of both, right? Because on the one hand, we do have this kind of rise of like body positivity, body neutrality, intuitive eating, um, you know, the health at every size movement. We have all of this and it's, it's there, but it's also interspersed with, like you said, influencers who, um, yeah, who are heavily filtered and heavily photoshopped. And, and I think it's this weird dichotomy where you can go online and you can be exposed to all of the things all at once. And so, yeah, for, for younger people today or, I mean, even older people, um, you know, what, what do you believe? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think we'll solve that problem today. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little above my pay grade. <laughs> I know. If only we could. <laughs> um, okay, so going back to your story, I'm curious if you're willing to talk about it a bit. How you've mentioned that you recovered in the three years you were taking a lot of science classes. How did you go about recovery? Yeah. Um, so I think you know, and I guess I'll, I'll preface all of this with like, this is obviously just my experience, um, you know, and everybody kind of experiences disordered eating and eating disorders differently. Um, I'm kind of stubborn and I've always been like a DIYer, which is good and bad. I think when it came to my eating disorder recovery, it was ultimately not the greatest because I would say I realized that I had a problem about a year in and it ended up taking about six years to get it, you know, quote unquote under control. I don't really like to use those words because control is something that people with eating disorders often, you know, are trying to have. Um, but, you know, until until I felt like I was on the path to recovery, it took about six years of trying all of the things. Um, and when it started out, it was, you know, my eating disorder brain definitely pushed me down that side of restriction. So it was like, well, you know, if I can't control myself around ice cream, then the approach, you know, my response to that is I just can't ever eat ice cream. Um, and looking back on that now as a dietitian, I'm like, oh my God, like, no, that's the opposite of what you should be doing because the it's this binge restrict cycle where when you restrict what you're eating, 
when you do finally get a hold of it, that's when you go overboard and that's when you binge and then you feel bad about the binge. So you restrict and then it's just a cycle that keeps repeating. Um, so I went, I went really down that path for a while and it was all of the different things. Um, you know, I was very into the like whole foods plant-based situation for a while. Um, Mm -hmm. and it, it did not serve me at all. Um, but ultimately I think truly, and this, this seems, this seems like I'm just like a spokesperson for intuitive eating, but like that was the way that I was ultimately able to recover was through finding this totally different paradigm and this like different approach to eating than like what, what we've been told, you know, what I was reading in magazines and everything like that. Um, so yeah. And I, and I guess I'll also say like as a dietitian. I think what I just said is a little bit controversial. Um, there's a lot of conversation about whether or not intuitive eating is for people who have active eating disorders. Um, and the argument is basically by saying, so I, I'm trying to think about how to talk about this because I realize we haven't really talked that much about intuitive eating. Um, but but the the argument from people who think it shouldn't be for people with eating disorders is that it could be approached as just another set of rules. Um, mm-hmm. And when we're talking about restrictive eating disorders from a clinical perspective, the kind of first line of treatment is always liberalizing the diet. So basically, you know, saying you're not going to be whole foods, plant-based anymore. You're going to eat your fear foods. Um, you know, you're going to not have anything off limits um, with obvious exceptions for like, if you have celiac disease, we're not going to force you to eat bread. Um, (laughs) but, um, yeah, but I, I, you know, that's the argument for why intuitive eating shouldn't be used in active eating disorders. But I think, you know, from my personal experience and just from what I've kind of seen clinically, um, I don't entirely agree with that. Um, and I, again, there's, so there's the long story short is there's 10 steps not steps, but there's 10 principles to intuitive eating. Um, and I think that if you try to approach them all at once while you're recovering from an eating disorder, you're going to have a bad time. But if you are able to take them kind of step by step, they do sort of take you through that process of liberalizing the diet, um, of sort of saying no to diet culture, putting your desire to lose weight on the back burner, all, all things that are clinically used in the treatment of eating disorders. Wow. So I guess now is a good time. <laughs> what exactly is intuitive eating? And then we can talk about those 10 principles. I'm guessing that's part of the definition. Yes, I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> so I guess I'll start and I realize I keep just being like, let me answer your question. But first, let me talk about something else. <laughs> um, Perfectly fine. <laughs> so I just want to give you a little bit of context about how intuitive eating came to be. So it was developed in the 90s by two dietitians whose last names I can't pronounce, but I'm going to try. Um, their names are Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. And I apologize so much if I mispronounce those names. Um, but they were two dietitians in the 90s, which the 90s was like, the time of the Atkins diet and the low fat diet. And like, I don't, I don't know when the grapefruit diet was, but like, you know, there were all of these different diets that were like, well, you should eat this way, but not this way. And you should eat this way, but not this way. And what Evelyn and Elise noticed was that by having all of this messaging about dieting, what was happening was that people's mental health was really suffering, um, which is, is what we've seen. Dieting is 
the main predictor of developing an eating disorder. Um, so it obviously not great for your mental health. Um, and so what they wanted to do through intuitive eating was come up with some sort of method that would allow positive nutritional and physical health gains while also respecting this mental health um, relationship with food piece. And so that is how intuitive eating was born. Um, and as I mentioned, intuitive eating has these 10 principles which are not the same as rules. And it sounds really um, kind of nitpicky to be like, well, they're principles, not rules. Um, and if you, if you look at them, I mean, it's a list of 10 things that, you know, are ideal to be doing in intuitive eating. But the, what makes them not rules is the way that we approach them. Um, and so I will once again put off telling you what the 10 principles are by giving you an example. Um, so two of the 10 principles are honor your hunger and feel your fullness. So, and there's a lot more information on them, but let's contrast them with a popular hunger fullness diet, which says eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. So with intuitive eating, we're not saying when you're hungry, you have to eat. We're saying when you're hungry, honor it. So probably that means you're going to want to eat when you get hungry. But if you don't, it's not the end of the world. And then with feel your fullness, we're not saying stop eating when you feel full. We're saying acknowledge it, notice it, and use the other tools that you have in your toolbox to make an informed decision that is best for your body about whether you're going to stop eating or whether you're going to continue eating or something else. Um, so it, it's just sort of that different approach that it's not this strict rule. It's, it's a guideline and it's just a, a tool that you can use to do what's best for you. Um, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds more like I don't know if this is the right way to say it, more like a gray area than a black and white. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And intuitive eating is all about that gray area. Um, so, so I already mentioned those two principles, honor your hunger, feel your fullness. Um, so the other eight, I guess, are to reject the diet mentality. So this is basically just saying dieting is dumb. Um, you know, it's, it surrounds us. Everything, everyone and their mother tells me I should be losing weight and I call bullshit on that. Um, so number two is honor your hunger. Number three is to make peace with food. So this one is give yourself unconditional permission to eat what you want, when you want, as much of it as you want. And that is, in my opinion, the key piece that really can break you out of that binge restrict cycle. Because by giving yourself that unconditional permission to eat what, when, how much you want, you take that food off of a pedestal and it doesn't have power over you anymore. Um, principle four, challenge the food police. So this is all kind of tied in with that idea of, you know, well, my coworker told me that I shouldn't eat fat. Um, and just, just saying, you know what, screw my coworker. I don't care what she has to say. Um, it also involves challenging your internal food po police. So whatever those foods are, where when you crave them, you immediately hear yourself saying, well, I probably shouldn't eat that right now. Challenge that. Um, five is discover the satisfaction factor. So this is, it's what it sounds like. And this is actually my favorite nutrition fact ever. 
Um, but if you enjoy the food that you're eating, you are actually more likely to absorb the nutrients in it. What? Isn't that awesome? That's amazing. It's like my coolest fact ever. Um, so, so it kind of touches on that idea that like if you hate kale and you're forcing yourself to eat kale, it's probably not a good choice for you. Um, so six is feel your fullness. Seven is to cope with your emotions with kindness. Um, so being compassionate towards yourself. Also, um, I think a lot of people in general, but also people who fall on that disordered eating spectrum tend to have this, um, response mechanism to emotions where they either will use food to cope or will basically be hard on themselves um, and say, well, you know, you really messed up today. Why did you do that? You suck. Um, so just coming up with more appropriate ways to deal with things. Um, and, and that's not saying that we can never use food to deal with our feelings. Um, absolutely not. Again, guideline. So principle. Um, so there are certainly times where you know, you might go through your toolbox of coping mechanisms and say, you know what, like I have other options, but like Ben and Jerry's on the couch really sounds like it's going to do the job for me right now. And then just be okay with that. Mm -hmm. And then to me, the last three principles are where the real fun starts. Um, so <laughs> eight is to respect your body. That's, uh, it sounds straightforward, obviously easier said than done. Um, nine is about finding joyful movement, um, which I know like for us as runners and climbers, maybe that's a little bit easier than it is for other people. Um, but there's also this aspect of improving your relationship with exercise. So for me, like I started running to lose weight and I ultimately ended up like falling in love with the sport. Um, but there was still always this, this aspect of control around it. So sort of healing that relationship and, and switching it so that it was always about love or at least performance and not about controlling my body. Um, mm -hmm. And then the 10th principle is called gentle nutrition. And this is like the ultimate cheat code for everything intuitive eating. And of course, as a dietitian, this is my favorite. Um, but basically, this is, this is where we have all of these things. We give ourselves unconditional permission to eat what we want. But I can also recognize that if I eat nothing but cookies, I am not only going to feel like shit, but I'm also not going to be very healthy from that. Um, and so by practicing gentle nutrition, I can get myself eating in a way that supports both my physical health and my mental health. I love all of those principles. <laughs> um, so I'm guessing... Let's see. What question do I want to ask first? <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing that gentle nutrition really comes into play when we talk about using intuitive eating for those of us who are athletes because all of us runners know after a long run, sometimes we're not hungry. Um, but And I feel like that is from what I've seen not as a nutritionist, just as someone on social media, when people argue against like athletes or active people using intuitive eating it's like you won't be fueling yourself well enough because just as what you were saying before the hunger full I think people confuse intuitive eating and the hunger fullness um diet a lot um so is that is that spot on yeah you are <laughs> you are spot on I think there are you know I think one of the biggest misconceptions especially within the world of 
mountain sports is this idea that intuitive eating is just the hunger fullness diet. And if that were true, then the people who say that, uh, that intuitive eating isn't for athletes are absolutely right. Because as you mentioned, after a long run, usually the last thing I want to do is eat. But we know that that is what we need to do to refill our glycogen stores, to recover our muscles. Um, so yeah, so how, how does that fit into intuitive eating? It is exactly through that, that principle 10 gentle nutrition. Um, and, and we can think of that in, um, you know, in non-athlete terms. It, it's sort of the similar idea as I woke up in the morning, I wasn't very hungry for breakfast, but I have meetings at work from nine until noon. And I know that if I don't eat now, I'm going to be hungry at some point between nine and noon. So I'm going to eat a breakfast now, even though I'm not hungry, because I'm doing my, my future self a favor. Um, so I like to think of that as intentional or practical fueling. Um, which is absolutely consistent with intuitive eating because of that principle 10, um, which really is kind of like a cheat code. But, you know, you can do all of those things because you are able to internally survey yourself and use those cues and, and know your body, right? I mean, I think we live in this society where like everything is external, whether it's like what what Cosmopolitan magazine tells us to eat or what your coworker tells you or whatever. And so intuitive eating really is all about just tuning in and learning to read your body's own cues and do what's best for your body. Um, so yeah, so fueling after a workout absolutely falls into that category. That makes a lot of sense. When, I guess I'll ask this question first. Is there any type of person that you would say is better suited for intuitive eating? And is there any type of person you'd be like, I wouldn't recommend this for them? I think intuitive eating is great for everybody. <laughs> cool. Um, <laughs> you know, so so I will say kind of piggybacking off of that active eating disorder conversation. Um when somebody does have an active eating disorder, I think that a little bit more care needs to be taken into as to how they approach intuitive eating. Um, like I said, if, if they immediately see that list of 10 principles, somebody who has been deep in a restrictive eating disorder or really into dieting is probably going to skip down to those principles 9 and 10, exercise and nutrition, and just focus on those things. So I think... Um, when, when we are talking about someone who, who does have an active eating disorder is just really deep into dieting, um, working with a professional who can really take them through each of the principles and maybe just start with one at a time um, from the beginning. Uh, you know, I like to say the principles are in the order that they are for a reason. Um, and it's because it's, it's like a pyramid. If you don't have that base of ditching diet culture and, you know, stepping away from the scale adding in the things at the top, it's not going to help you. It's, you know, it's probably going to be detrimental. Um, but other than that, I would say it's, it's good for everybody. That's good to know. If someone, let's say it's someone who has not struggled with disordered eating of any kind in the past or present, if they are like, oh, this sounds pretty good and they're interested in trying it, would you – well, I guess can – I mean, they can approach it themselves. How would you recommend they approach it themselves or would you steer them towards a professional? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and declare both of my biases. Um, 
<laughs> as a dietitian who works with people on this, I am inclined to say work with a professional. Um, as somebody who is team DIY everything, um, you know, you know your body best, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think I think that's kind of what it comes down to is if you feel like you're the kind of person who is introspective enough to really be able to work through everything, um, I think it's fine to approach it on your own. Um, but knowing that there are professionals like registered dietitians, therapists, um, there are some good coaches out there and other nutritionists, um, you know, those, those resources are available. Um, I would definitely encourage anybody who is trying to DIY it to not do the intuitive eating light version where you just read about it on Reddit. Um, <laughs> I would definitely encourage, there is a book um, written by Evelyn Triboli, Elise Resch. Um, they also have a fantastic workbook um, that goes through each of the principles and has like, I don't even know, 20 plus activities for each principle that really encourages you to deep dive and take stock of why your mind and your body operate the way that they do. And those are really good options if you do decide to go the DIY route. That sounds so helpful. I'll link those in the show notes for anyone interested. Um, What you were just saying about finding a professional to work with reminded me of one of our conversations at the group run months ago. So I think we should touch on it now. If someone is looking for professional help, um, can you talk about what should they be looking for? Because, you know, a lot of people can call themselves nutritionists and they don't really have to have much of any education um, in order to say that. So can you touch on like what um, titles you, you might look for, what the difference is between the titles? Absolutely. So I'll preface this with there are absolutely some legit nutritionists out there, um, including so certified nutrition specialist is one title to look mm-hmm. for. And I know you had Caitlin on your podcast um, and yeah. she's a CNS and that's a that's like a totally legit um, certification. There are also um, other nutritionists who maybe don't have that certification, but might have some sort of formal education in nutrition um, or just like are legit people, um, but just making sure that you're really vetting who you're working with. Um, And then of course the registered dietitians. Um, So as you mentioned, Kelly, anyone can pretty much say I'm a nutritionist um, and it, there's no regulation of the term. Um, So you, you really don't know what you're going to get. Um, whereas for a registered dietitian, um, at this point, let's see, it's 2023. So right now dietitians are required to have either a bachelor's or a master's degree. And this is all just in the U S I don't know how it is in other countries. Um, but a bachelor's or a master's in an accredited program in nutrition, it's accredited by the dietetics governing body. Um, so there are certain programs that qualify certain ones that don't. Um, after that education, they have to complete a, it is now a thousand hour internship. Um, so this is basically, I call it like a residency, but for dietitians. So you're working in hospitals, you're working in community health clinics, um, essentially doing the job of a dietitian, but under supervision. And then you have to pass a national board exam. And then every five years, or it can be fewer in certain states, um, you have to be maintaining continuing education. Um, and in I, I was 
figuring out what year it was because in 2024, I believe, um, all dietitians are going to be required to have a master's degree, um, which I have some thoughts about that. But that that is what it takes to be a dietitian. I know for the CNS certification, it's a very similar process. Um, it just ends up, um, I think the CNS approach is a little, tends to be a little more holistic, whereas for a dietitian, it's got a little more of like a clinical focus, um, but they still go through, I believe it's a master's and like an internship situation. Um, but yeah, you can, uh, you can take a six week online course and call yourself a nutritionist. Yeah, I think technically I can call myself a nutritionist Um, (laughs) just with – I mean, I did do an endurance nutrition certification, so there's at least that. But personally, I would not feel very comfortable doing much with it other than like general guidelines. Um, But that's just to say you don't need much to call yourself (laughs) a nutritionist. (laughs) Exactly. Um, You know, and I've definitely seen some – bad advice out there from quote unquote nutritionists. Um, I was going to add something to that and I don't remember. Oh, um, so the other thing about like looking at a dietitian versus nutritionist is if you have any sort of medical condition, um, which can include a diagnosed eating disorder, um, and you are going to be talking with a professional about that medical condition, in many states, not as many as it should be, but in many states, a dietitian is the only person who is legally allowed to give you advice um, when you do have that medical condition. Um, so something to consider. That makes a lot of sense because most people who are not, haven't followed that rigorous education, don't, they aren't well equipped to deal with those with eating disorders or disordered eating or because like you're saying it is you know a medical diagnosis kind of thing even if you were never officially diagnosed um it's something you need to handle with care and not just any influencer that knows about nutrition (laughs) kind of thing or doesn't know about nutrition and decides to sell their services anyway yeah uh yeah i feel like we could go down a deep rabbit hole with that (laughs) yes it's a very very deep rabbit hole oh yes social media is an interesting place (laughs) um so back to intuitive eating for athletes how i want to say how does it work that is a very vague question for you (laughs) I guess, how do you approach it with athletes, yourself included? Because obviously, um, we have a lot, I don't want to say a lot more considerations than a non-athlete, but there are, you know, we're doing, especially for us runners, we're doing a lot of, usually a lot of exercise time on feet, using up our glycogen stores, and there's just a lot of more complications than someone who is more sedentary, let's say. Um, So how do you approach that with athletes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it is, you know, like all nutrition topics, um, very individualized for the person. Um, But yeah, you're absolutely right. Definitely taking those considerations into mind. Um, A lot of the time, and this kind of ties back into that hunger and fullness aspect of it. um, But a lot of the time, it really is focusing on that gentle nutrition piece and saying like, you know, I know you're not hungry right now, but you just ran, you know, 20 miles today and you're going to do another 15 tomorrow. Like you got to eat, you got to eat your carbs, you got to eat your protein. Um, I think, uh, 
something that a lot of people, um, athletes included, really tend to have trouble with um, is the idea of eating kind of what I like to call fun foods. So these are our more calorically dense foods. Um, and of course, because of diet culture in general, um, we've, we've been sort of conditioned to say like, okay, if I'm going to sit down for dinner, I'm going to eat brown rice and chicken and broccoli, and that's going to be my meal. But as athletes, often that isn't going to be enough. Um, and so I think something that a lot of athletes really struggle with is feeling okay about incorporating more of these fun foods. Um, so maybe it's, you know, having that bowl of ice cream every night, um, you know, fueling your runs with like muffins or uh, something, something like that, that is going to pack a little bit more of a caloric punch. Um, and, and this all does sort of tie back to those original, um, initial principles of intuitive eating, where we really are focusing on sort of taking the moral value away from food. Um, so I call them fun foods because it's not junk food. They're not bad. You know, there's no such thing as good or bad foods. They all serve a purpose. Um, and for athletes, a lot of the time eating those fun foods is going to be the healthier option because, I mean, can you imagine refueling from a 30-mile run on broccoli and chicken and rice? You'd be hungry for so, so long. So hungry and with, like, the worst GI distress. <laughs> Not to mention it's so boring. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, let's see. What are some other related issues with athletes? Um, I guess, like, eating more frequently. I know this is something that I've personally been really struggling with as I've been ramping up training um, is I, I am, I am not a dietitian who like has an extravagant meal all the time. Like I don't enjoy cooking um, most of the time. Like I am very lazy when it comes to eating. And what I've found is that I have just been so hungry and I am so annoyed by having to reach for snacks all the time. Um, so in that sense, like really dialing in on that honoring your hunger part, because half the time, you know, I'll be sitting there on the couch. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm hungry. I just ate. I don't want to get up and get more food. But it's it's the kind of thing where I have to remind myself like, okay, my body is clearly telling me that it needs more nutrients. So I need to respect my body and give it to them. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of athletes can can relate to um, is, you know, those three square meals a day don't don't really do it for us a lot of the time. Um. No, I feel like, I feel like I've been lied to my entire <laughs> life with the three meals a day, even just like, I don't want to talk about calorie numbers, but like doing the math on certain calorie numbers, splitting that up between three meals. Like if you were to eat enough, you'd have to eat quite a bit for each meal, you know? And that probably ties into why we have like, the $1,200, not $1,200, $1,200 calorie a day, which we're all like fed for a long time and is total bullshit. Um, but yeah, I don't know who came up with that, but <laughs> I personally can't live by that either. Like I'm snacking all the time. Um, but like you said, I'm training a lot just like you. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and there's also a lot of research. This is a little bit of an aside, but in terms of it's like a really hot thing on social media now to talk about balancing your hormones, um, oh, which I, I have my <laughs> issues with, but this is the one time where I will say, like, if you eat frequently throughout the day, your insulin 
is going to be better balanced than if you eat a giant meal and then you wait five hours and then you eat a giant meal. So yeah, eat, eat your snacks, even though it's annoying. <laughs> yeah. And often I think snacks are the more fun things to eat than meals. I'm like you. I don't like cooking. I'm a lazy girl. Frozen meals, you know, salads that come pre-packaged, just throw stuff together. Chicken, I just have to microwave. <laughs> no judgment. I support that. <laughs> yeah. Easy meals. That's what I'm all about. Yeah. Same. I What I've started doing recently, um, which is, you know, something I've read about a lot and I've like honestly recommended it to clients before, but I'd never tried it. Um, and honestly, it's awesome is eating two lunches. Um, so it's like, a, it could be, you know, you cook once and then you just split your meal into two. Um, cause I know for me, like I can't tolerate, like you were saying that giant meal all at once. It just does not make me feel good. Mm -hmm. So it's easier for me to just eat two lunches. And then that also saves me the effort of like having to just snack constantly all afternoon. Cause I can just have a little bit more all at once. That is so smart. <laughs> And honestly, that makes so much more sense to me because um, then it's like you eat breakfast for like Hobbit. You eat your first lunch. <laughs> you eat your second lunch. And then it's not like five or six hours until dinner time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's – Yeah, that's <laughs> – <laughs> it's it's a good it's a good little trick. Um but yeah, I mean I think I think a lot of, you know, when talking about intuitive eating with anybody, but like especially with athletes, it really is just a lot of like getting creative. Um, you know, working with what you know you like. I mean, you you said you love snacking, you know, I would rather just like eat and have it done with. So, you know, whatever whatever works for you, can we work together and come up with a plan? That'll help you get all of the nutrition that you need to fuel your workouts and your recovery. Yeah. So one thing that I'm curious about with athletes in particular is in general, a lot of us aren't eating enough. Um, I'm curious how with intuitive eating, how – I mean this is probably something I asked Caitlin in whatever episode that was. But like how do you know – when you're not eating enough? Yeah, good question. Um, unfortunately, there's not a cut and dry answer. Um, you know, and even even like taking away this intuitive eating piece, um, I wouldn't recommend necessarily calorie counting as a way to do that just because there's so much uncertainty. Um, like food labels are only required by the FDA to be accurate within wow. plus or minus 20%. So if if your food label says it has 30 grams of protein, it might have 24, it might have 36, like who knows? Um, so from an intuitive eating perspective, um, this, this is really where you being the expert in your body really comes out to play. Um, so there are several things you could be looking for. The most obvious is are you maintaining your weight? Um, and weighing yourself can obviously be triggering for certain people. So if it's triggering for you, like definitely don't use that as, as a, a measure. Um, but you know, are your clothes still fitting you the same? Um, if you notice your leggings are getting a little looser, that's probably a sign you're not eating enough. Um, mm -hmm. are you getting injured all the time? Um, 
if you're not eating enough, you're at increased risk of injury. Uh, similarly, do you just feel lethargic? Um, are you not recovering well? Are you not performing as well as you feel like you should, given all of the things? Um, you know, and there there could be other causes for some of these, like stress, not sleeping enough. Um, but nutrition is obviously another component there. And so if if you do find that you're not performing as well as you want to, you're not feeling like you're recovering, it's a good time to just take a survey of everything that's going on in your life and in your body and, and really think about it. Um, I think for a lot of athletes, honestly, if we try to stick to those three meals a day, we're probably not going to get enough. Um, another thing to consider is especially if you're going on like a lot of longer runs are how is your fueling within your workout going? Um, cause that's, that's going to impact your recovery. Um, but then, you know, it also contributes to your total energy intake. There's been, um, some interesting new research coming out that looks at like within the day energy deficits. So basically saying like, you know, we like most of most of the research on energy balance has been focused on like average per day. But there's new research coming out that's looking like, you know, if if you have a three hour period where you're in an energy deficit, that can be detrimental to recovery performance, all of the things. Um, so really like making sure that you are eating frequently, making sure that when you're in the middle of a workout, you're doing everything that you can to get those, you know, 30 to 60 grams of carbs, you know, higher than that if you're out for a really long time. That's crazy. I didn't know about the, the within day. It's pretty research. cool. I think, I think it's, yeah, pretty new research. Um, so that we don't know like a ton about mm -hmm. it, but what, what the research does at this point indicate is like, we should be eating pretty often, especially if we're active. I guess that kind of makes sense. Cause it's like when you go out for, your run, you dig yourself a hole. And then if you don't fill in that hole, obviously like while we're existing, we're still expending energy, you know? So if you don't refill the hole, then you're just digging it deeper without even knowing it. Exactly. Exactly. Or if you don't refill it enough, yes, then, you know, you're just still sitting underground. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good analogy. I like oh, that. Thank you. <laughs> so basically we should all just be eating a lot quite often. Not yes. a lot all the time, but you know, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. And listening to our bodies in, in more ways than just, am I hungry? Am I full? Yeah. Combining the knowledge of our bodies with the knowledge of our sport. Yes. I love that. <laughs> Utilizing that gentle nutrition cheat code. Yes. Um, is there anything we didn't touch on with intuitive eating that you think we should have before we pivot to our favorite conversation? One thing that I do want to point out, um, so I, you know, I have a, a background in research. Um, so it's, it's very important to me that the things that I'm doing and the things that I'm recommending to clients are evidence-based, which has also become a buzzword, which I hate. The <laughs> internet ruins everything. Um, <laughs> but there, there is a large and growing body of research about intuitive eating, um, initial research focused on that mental health piece. Um, so what, what has been fairly well established is that intuitive eaters have lower levels of anxiety. They have higher satisfaction with their body, more self-compassion. Um, we also know that intuitive eaters tend to eat more fruits and vegetables than people who don't eat intuitively, oh. uh, which is great. But there's also a 
an emerging body of research that focuses on more of those health outcomes. Um, and it's still, you know, there's not a ton of studies on it, but what has come out has pretty much indicated that being an intuitive eater can lower your risk of certain chronic diseases. So I think there's a lot of opposition to intuitive eating because of that idea that like, well, if I eat whatever I want, I'm just going to eat nothing but cookies forever. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just not supported by the research. And also after like two days of eating nothing but cookies, you're going to feel terrible. <laughs> yeah. And it'll turn you off from cookies probably for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, that that is what, what I see, um, you know, and what I personally have experienced too. Like when you finally give yourself that unconditional permission to eat as much ice cream or as many cookies as you want you spend a lot of time eating a lot of cookies and by the end of it you're like man I would love some carrots right now yeah I um feel this way sometimes when we go on like trips where we don't have as many vegetables as usual and then I get home and I'm like I just want a salad <laughs> You know, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it really does just take trusting that your body is going to know what it needs to to kind of take that dive. Yeah. And what I'm also hearing at the same time is that like, if there are some days where, you know, you eat less fruits and vegetables or quote unquote healthy things, like it's totally fine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you know, odds are your body is going to kind of swing in the other direction the next day and be like, hey, you know, I could probably use some roughage. How about a salad or two? Um, but also from like a nutritional perspective, um, when we are talking about like micronutrients, it really is sort of within a week what our average is um, rather than necessarily like, did I eat X grams of, you know, whatever mineral today and tomorrow and the next day like if I don't eat any today and I double it tomorrow I'll be fine hmm. I like that I like to think about that in terms of like training and stuff too and other macronutrients like protein so, yeah yeah you know it's when we talk about macros it gets a little nastier just because of that recovery component yeah um, you don't want to yeah. too far in one direction under exactly under consuming yeah, exactly. But no, I, I like that idea when we think about training too. Yeah, it's it all, like, it all kind of evens out. Yeah, one run on a day doesn't really – I mean, it never really matters that much in the grand scheme of things. But I, I find this has nothing to do with nutrition. But some people who are more perfection perfectionists, when they don't think about like, oh, my training says to do this on this one day. It's like, oh, in this week I'm doing – you know, however much and like giving that flexibility, like, oh, I cut today short. Maybe I'll tack on some tomorrow. That's not always the best choice, by the way. But, <laughs> you know, just having that flexibility, like this is what I plan for the week. And if I don't do it on this day, it's totally OK. Maybe I move it. Maybe I skip it. But similar. Concept. Yeah, I, I imagine like having that rigidity would, you know, it could increase your risk of injury. Um, mm hmm. Like if you go out one day and you're like, man, I'm really not feeling it. I slept like shit last night, but you still try to push, then I feel like you could probably be more likely to get injured than if you just cut it short and switch that longer run to another day. Yeah. It's just like you're saying, listening to your body with nutrition. It's like listening to your body with how you're feeling before, during, and after running. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. We just got to be more in tune with ourselves overall. Yes. Yeah. 
Uh, okay, so I know we wanted to talk about diet culture in the outdoors. Um, <laughs> so Elise and I are both climbers and runners. Well, I don't really climb right now, but you know, all the same. We have come from the climbing and running worlds. And in climbing right now, there's been a fair amount of discussions about professionals struggling with eating disorders or disordered eating. Um, and I know you wanted to touch a bit on that. So where do you want yeah. to go from here? That's a great question. You're putting <laughs> the ball in my court. For I this know. One. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe I'll just start by kind of giving a little background to some of your listeners who maybe aren't as in tune with what what goes on in the climbing world. Um, so um, there have been so it's been a few years now, but Beth Rodden, who is like, you know, one of the top female climbers ever. Um, she came out a few years ago with this article that she wrote um, that was basically just about her experience with disordered eating um, and just with the the culture in the climbing community in general, it's sort of encouraging her to get small, stay small. Um, and, and if you think about it in climbing, right, you're, you know, pulling yourself up a wall. And so the logic is kind of there where like if you weigh less, you have less weight to pull up the wall, which is why every time I go to the gym, there's like some 10 year old team kid flash in my project um who weighs like 40 pounds I'm like well that's why um but yeah and so Beth Rodding came out with this article about her experience um and I feel like you know there there might have been something going on before that but I know like for like when Beth's story came out that was kind of my initial like oh people are talking about this um and that kind of got the ball rolling um there were a few other climbers who wrote articles um you know have been posting on social media about that kind of thing there is an excellent documentary that got released I think two years ago um called Light um and it's by Caroline Treadway um and it kind of goes into competition climbers from I don't know kind of it was a little before my time I guess like you know, maybe, maybe like that would have been around your time. I don't know. Um, I wasn't really into comp climbing or watching comp climbing yet. It was, that's fair. I guess it was when I got into climbing, but I wasn't aware of comp climbing yet. Okay. Okay. And yeah. to be fair, I feel like there weren't very many people interested in comp fair. climbing at that time. <laughs> um, but um, yeah. And so the documentary just kind of goes into this sort of dissection of like the pressures that are on climbers, um, you know, to, to stay light. Um, that's why the documentary is called light. Um, and I, I think it's awesome that, that we have all of these people coming out and telling their stories and trying to make climbing more inclusive, um, and, you know, and focusing on maintaining a healthy, a healthy body, but also just a healthy relationship with food and movement um, and that sort of thing. But what I was talking to Kelly about earlier, <laughs> um, I, I was just saying how, you know, it's great that all of these conversations are happening, but I feel like for casual or just like, you know, any sort of amateur climbers, like these pressures are still there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's easy for people to watch a documentary like light and be like, wow, it really sucks that Emily Harrington had to deal with this. Like, you know, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that. Nobody I know is dealing with that, but it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, I know like Kelly, you're obviously part of this community and just the, the number of times that I've heard people saying like, oh, you know, I got to lose some weight so that I can send my project or, you know, 
anything, anything like that, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the diet culture is so strong in climbing. Yeah. Or I hear, or have I heard it recently? I don't know. I've heard a lot in my climbing career, um, stuff like, I don't want to strength train cause then I'll get bulky and then my, my legs will get too big, even though if, for those of us who do climbing, that was a weird way to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we know that legs are very important to climbing. And if you have stronger legs, it's beneficial and not detrimental. Um, yeah, it's very interesting that, I mean, it's really good, like you're saying, that we're hearing it from the professionals. I also feel like it's not talked about enough yet because I still watch comp climbing quite a bit. I love it. But, and I just want to preface this with like, you can't tell what someone's dealing with just by looking at them. But sometimes you look at some people and you're like, you kind of look like on, on, on the edge. Like, obviously as a viewer, you don't know anything about this person. So who am I to judge? But it's like, I hope someone is talking to you if you are struggling kind of thing. And beyond that, like IFSC for comp climbing, the Olympics, any elite stage, this is not where we intended to go. But I don't think they're doing enough to make sure that like disordered eating isn't happening as much, you know? And I don't know. I don't know how they would do it. Um, Because obviously, like, BMI is bullshit, so you can't be like, you need a certain BMI in order to compete. But I feel like there is responsibility on those governing bodies to put something in place to make sure athletes are healthy, especially for those of us who are the recreational climbers who are watching these comps and like, oh, this is how I get good, you know? Yeah, those are those are some really good points. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about it. You're absolutely right. Like having a minimum BMI is absolutely not the answer. Um, but I think honestly, it, it needs to come more from the top. Um, like, are we training coaches to yeah. not talk in terms of, you know, well, if you lost five pounds, you could, you know, beat you on your corn bread, <laughs> like, you know, and I, I, of course I say this, like, I'm so far removed from that. I have no idea what kinds of training coaches go through, if any, but you know, that, that to me seems like a good starting point. Um, and I, you know, I think about this with like running in, you know, for high school teams, like are mm-hmm. coaches receiving similar training where they're not focusing on weight. Um, and I feel like that would be a really good starting point for comp climbing um, is just to have it come down from the top that like you need to go through this training, um, you know, making sure that climbers have access to resources that they need, Um, you know, hopefully post Olympics, like US climbing has a little bit more money that they can actually put towards that. But I know like in the past, you know, climbing, climbing has really been a kind of like ad hoc thing where it hasn't really been as centralized. Um, So which makes it even harder to implement any kind of policy yeah and very similar with running because even at the pro level it's like obviously I'm not a pro I don't know that much but you know they don't make that much money Mm -hmm. as pro runners um obviously depending on who you are you know like Courtney DeWalter's probably doing quite fine (laughs) um but have you read good for a girl yet I haven't I'm on the wait list at the library (laughs) it's so good it kind of it addresses 
a lot of what we're talking about within like high school, college running, and then professional too. Um, not always about around like the eating topics, but like also like women being pregnant and then their sponsors being like, bye. Um, so I feel like in running, I am hopeful that like Lauren Fleshman coming out and talking about things with her book. I think Kara in her book might talk about touch on this a bit. Um, obviously her book's not out yet, so I cannot confirm. But I feel like there are some big names in running that are starting to talk about it. But same idea as you were saying with climbing, like those of us normie runners out here, we're we're struggling with it too. And then it's like, how do we uh what word am I looking for? <laughs> <laughs> like, how do we deal with this? Cause it's still so widespread, like if you lose weight, you'll run faster or like even just stuff like you should be eating whole grains instead of simple sugars. And it's like, okay, but if I'm eating before my run, I mean, my GI system is actually quite good. So I could probably eat whatever <laughs> I want, but Lucky. A, lot of people, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people, you know, it's like, no, you should not eat the whole grain because you probably can't handle that fiber. But I mean, that's like been kind of a hard thing for me coming from the diet culture place. Like, wait, I can eat like candy on my run and that's totally cool and really helpful versus like an avocado, you know? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I, you know, that's, that's what I think about all the time is, and I, I, I have, I need to set some better boundaries with social media, but I see <laughs> posts all the time in like running groups that, that are like, you know, are there any other like gluten-free keto whole foods runners out there? And I'm like, how, no, like eat carbs, <laughs> eat processed carbs, because if you eat that much fiber before you run or that much fat, like, you know, maybe mm -hmm. you're like Kelly's GI system and you're fine. But if you're mine, you're not going to have a good time. <laughs> yeah, well, even beyond like, sure, my stomach wouldn't hurt or anything. But is that really the best fuel for me before I'm like, you know, going out and running a hard workout? Like, no, not really. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, but I mean, there's there's so much of that. People are always talking about like whole foods fuel, which like is great. And I, if you're, especially if you're running ultras, like you got to train your stomach to take in some whole foods because six mm -hmm. hours of gels is also not going to be fun. Um, but you know, for, for only eating whole foods, that's not great. I mean, you know, like dates, dates are a really great fueling option a lot of the time, but I cannot imagine eating only dates for six hours, like so much fiber. It would not be a good time. Like, even if it is fueling me, okay. But yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a really good example of just the way that diet culture has kind of seeped into running even at a recreational level. Just this this idea of morality of food that, you know, eating a honey stinger gel is, you know, a bad, quote, choice because it's processed. Um, I know this has been an issue. Like there have been a couple of um, like sports nutrition companies that have sent out um you know you're nodding do you know what I'm talking about no okay okay <laughs> I don't they, think so. so they've um I don't remember which company it was but I think it, I think it was spring and they sent out some email to everyone basically saying like choose us because we're whole foods unlike some competitors <sighs> and so a lot of dietitians who I am acquainted with like got together and reached out to spring and they were like yo this is not cool like 
you know, yeah, like we like your gels, but they're not, you know, morally better than something else because they're made out of mashed up bananas instead of tapioca syrup or whatever. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's but, you know, I mean, I guess to your point earlier, like what what do we do about this? Um, you know, and it's part of me says like we just got to kind of start from the bottom. And when we see injustices like that, we need to reach out about it. Um but, you know, part of me is also impatient and is like, we need, we need change. <laughs> yeah, I think it's hard. Well, I think part of what is helpful is just like, I mean, you shared part of your story today. Normal people, quote unquote, normal people, non-professionals sharing their stories, I think it's helpful. Because um, a lot of us have struggled with similar things. And it's just like, this didn't. Or, well, I get okay. When I struggled, it was never really tied to my running performance. Like I wasn't like, I want to stay small so I can run faster, um, which is kind of different from a lot of the stories I hear within the running world. Um, but I think hearing stories about that and then not only the like I was struggling and because I wanted to run faster, and I did for a bit. And then I crashed and burned. And it's like, we need more of, well, I don't want people to experience this more, but more of the like after effects. Um, and that's something Lauren talks about a lot in her books. Like you see at the high school level, there's always like, maybe not always, um, I shouldn't speak in <laughs> extremes, <laughs> but there's commonly, you know, the best runner they're the best runner for like a year or two and then you never hear about them again and then it's like is that is like putting them on a pedestal when they are performing that well is that really the best way to say something is sick or someone is successful because then like what happened the rest of their life because like especially girls I ran with in college I know a lot of them don't run anymore because they just not tied to eating anything or eating disorders or disordered eating more like they got burnt out and they hate it but I think similarly, it's like you experience the success and then, you know, restricting can only help you for so long. Yeah, absolutely. And then the success is gone. And like what happens to those athletes? And we don't hear about it a lot. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, it works until it doesn't, right? Um, yeah. And unfortunately, you know, thanks for sharing a little bit of your story. Unfortunately, I think, you know, that's something a lot of people have experienced to some degree or another. Um you know, that you saying something about how we hear a lot about somebody and then we don't really makes me think about Mary Kane because she was sort of, you know, we talked about like Beth Rodden for climbing, like Mary Kane was definitely, you know, from what I have read, kind of the the person who really sort of got the ball rolling with this conversation in elite runners as well. You know, she was like the fastest high school runner and then mm -hmm. she signed with Nike and then nothing. Um you know, and she's come out and there was like that New York Times article and I've listened to her on, she did a really great podcast with Rich Roll. Um, yeah. So good. But yeah. And so she's out here like sharing her story of the aftermath. Um, and yeah, I mean, you're, you're totally right. I think just listening to other people. Um, I don't know what your turnaround is on these podcasts usually, but next week is National Eating Disorders Awareness Week. So if anybody is listening and feels inspired to share their story, um, it's good timing. That is good timing. Yeah, this will come out Wednesday of next oh, week. Perfect. 
yeah well so perfect yeah. time if if you've um, had an experience and feel comfortable sharing you know this is your call to action yeah or if you want to share your story but you personally don't want to share your story if you send it to me i can read it on the podcast anonymously it's great. We, that could be a nice episode. Well, not nice, but <laughs> you know. important. An yeah. important episode. Yes, that could be an important episode. Um, because I know it's hard to share, especially like some some people. I feel like you and I are immersed in the part of social media that's like very comfortable with sharing a lot of our lives, and it's like normalized more so. But you know, there are a lot of people that that would not be normal for them at all, and quite far out of their comfort zone not saying for like you know you and I that's not out of our comfort zone but yeah Yeah, it totally is for a lot of people and you know every time you know I've been very open about sharing my story um and I'm I'm glad that I did you know when I first started it was for me it was just a therapeutic thing for me to just get everything out there um but I remember the first time I posted about my experience with an eating disorder on Facebook I got messages from people I hadn't talked to since elementary school saying like, wow, this thing that you wrote about really resonated with me because I did the same thing. And, you know, you encouraged me to really think about what I've been through. And, you know, like I had somebody um, recently telling me that like me speaking out was the reason that they ended up going to treatment for an eating disorder. So like your, your story matters. Um, You know, even, even if it doesn't seem that way sometimes because we're still, steeped in diet culture in our sports and outside of sport um but you know your your story matters and it really can affect people yeah and I think the more of us that share the more normal it gets and then hopefully that will help the younger generation coming up to maybe not deal with as much as we did (laughs) coming up um or at least educate them a bit more about like this it could be what happens if you go down this path and it's like not great yeah no I I hope so I mean you know we were talking about like the kid climbers earlier like I I really hope that they have a totally different experience than you know and I I didn't grow up climbing so obviously I'm having a different experience but um you know I'm hoping that because there there are so many more people sharing their stories and talking about it and that you know we have people like Lizzo who are you know like we have Lizzo instead of like the Olsen twins um you know not not like ragging on Mary-Kate and Ashley like love me some Mary-Kate and Ashley but you know I mean Lizzo is out there like talking about you know this is my body like I exercise like I eat healthy but this is my body um and I think just having having her and having Beth Rodden and Amelia Boone and whoever else and you know and you and me and you know people listening like I think I think that's going to be really helpful in just yeah helping helping younger people to to see you know well it's it's okay to just love myself how I am or at least to accept myself Mm -hmm. yeah and those of us I was gonna say who aren't young but we are young (laughs) (laughs) don't feel that way sometimes (laughs) (laughs) that's true those of us you know we've been talking about the younger generation but those of us in the current and the older of all ages it can help us all because we're you know it at a certain point in time it's not like oh i'm not dealing with this anymore (laughs) you know 
<laughs> some people deal with it until they die, which is really sad. Huh. It always makes me sad. I, you know, I've worked with a number of um, middle-aged women who come to me and they say, I've been dieting since I was 20. I don't know how to do it any different. And it's, it's really sad. Um, you know, and I, I feel for them and I really hope that the younger generations don't have to deal with that. Yeah, I hope so too. Cause I feel like a lot of what was trickled down to us came from like our parents, their parents and what they grew up with. And yeah, I can only imagine the middle-aged women trying to get out of it. Cause you know, I'm 32 so it's been the majority of my life that it's been like front and center, but you know, for them it's been fifty plus years. That's like ugh. It's, a, it's hard to get out of. It's a lot of years of messaging and it's it's very hard to break yeah. away from. Yeah. Whew. Well is is there anything that we did not touch on with this topic? at present <laughs> that you want to touch on obviously there's like so much we could touch on but i know i was gonna say do you have five more hours <laughs> <laughs> i know explore all of the rabbit holes <laughs> no I, I you know i think i think we gave a good overview um of of all of the problems now i mean i i i do <laughs> think i do think that you know we're we're improving as far as the diet culture goes um as long as we have people out there talking about it, I think it'll continue in that direction. Yeah, I agree. And that is one of the perks of social media, the pros of social media. It is. It is. You know, I mean, I think we talked about earlier the sort of mixed signals that people get on social media now. But, you know, I how how great that they have different, you know, they, they do have people out there talking about their eating disorders and it's not just a hundred percent like things to eat to get six pack abs <laughs> back to the six packs <laughs> always comes back to the six packs it really did back in the day every single magazine um but you're not allowed to lift weights because you'll get bulky but you want a six pack oh no yeah you want a six pack you can only get toned <laughs> I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about that too. Uh yeah. The messaging for women is just <sighs> there's a lot we could say about that. I know. Well, I think this is a good place to wrap up. Where can everyone find you if they want to follow along or ask you any questions? Yeah, absolutely. Um probably the easiest way is gonna be Instagram. I'm at Elisa Outside underscore which is kind of annoying to have. Um, and then, yeah, I guess Kelly will probably, well, I guess my name is probably going to be on this, but yeah. my name is pronounced Elisa, but it's spelled Alyssa. So that's the way that it is. Um, you can also email me at elisaliebrd at gmail.com, um, especially if you're interested in any like nutrition specific things. Um, so yeah, email or Instagram. Perfect. And I'll put those in the show notes. Um but yeah, Elisa, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I think it'll be very helpful for a lot of people. And hopefully we will inspire some others to share their stories. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. This was great. Thanks for giving me a platform to stand on my hill and <laughs> talk.
That's a wrap on this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening to this. If you like this podcast, please rate, subscribe, review everything you do for podcasts wherever you listen to them. It helps me out immensely and helps other people find the show and just spread my message. And if you haven't already, connect with me on Instagram or TikTok at Coaching Klutz. You can also find me at my website, coachingklutz.com, if you're looking for my coaching services or any of my running programs. And I will talk to you all next time.